So turn into God's, John's Gospel, chapter 3. Uh, we looked a little bit at, um, at this passage last Lord's Day. We talked about being born again or being born from above. We're going to continue uh, the, to finish the rest of the passage today, but our scripture reading will be verse 1 of John 3 all the way through verse 21. So John 3, verse 1 through 21. Yeah. Trigger finger there. Okay, Uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness To what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the reading of God's word. We say, thanks be to God. So to recap where we were last week, we saw the beginning of this, uh, this account with Jesus and this ruler of the Jews, um, this man of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, who was a part of the ruling council of the Sanhedrin, a high official in uh, the Jewish 
uh, religious authorities there at that time. And Jesus was stressing, as we saw last week, the absolute importance, the, the absolute necessity, the requirement of spiritual rebirth from above in order for one to have eternal life and to enter into the kingdom. That's an absolute requirement. Jesus was driving this point home. That we are dead in our sins and that we must be made alive by God himself to see the kingdom. But how? That becomes the subject of the rest of this conversation. How, ultimately, is, because of, uh, is through belief in Jesus Christ. Faith in the word and power of God. By ourselves, we are powerless to receive anything that comes from God unless God grants it to his people. But to those who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, we are now enabled to believe and to receive the gift that God is giving that is life with God eternally. And Jesus says what, what we looked at last week, Jesus says, this has always been true. Throughout all of Israel's history, this has always been true of God, that his salvation comes as a gift. Life comes to those who look in faith to God for their deliverance. Now, the rest of this exchange that we saw last week, got through about verse 10 or so, verse 10 or 11. I want to look at the rest of the exchange uh, here. And it is highlighting this point, that all throughout Israel's history, salvation comes to those who look to God for their deliverance. Nicodemus, of all people, should know this truth. So Jesus had said on a couple of occasions, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, verse 3. And again, in verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born uh, of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. To this, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Notice that says there in verse 9. Nicodemus of all people should know that this is true. After all, as Jesus uh, accuses him of, you're, you're the teacher of Israel. But it becomes evident that he doesn't know that this is true. Because Jesus says in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus is exposing Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, his ignorance regarding uh, the Old Testament teaching on this. And as we saw last week, this is likely a reference to the, to the washing and the giving of the Spirit and the new heart, taking out the heart of stone and giving a, a, a heart of flesh uh, as pictured in Ezekiel chapter 36, which is further pictured in 37 with the the valley of the dry bones coming back to life, that this is all happening by the word of God, by the breath of God, which was uh, uh, the same word for the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus should have known this. He did not know. Now, at this point in the conversation, Nicodemus is never heard from again. It's the last thing we hear from Nicodemus. How can these things be? And the conversation then kind of swift, switches from dialogue to monologue. Jesus now goes on to say that uh, Nicodemus is guilty of a couple things. One, he's guilty of rejecting Jesus' firsthand testimony. Look at verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
We speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So he's accusing here of Nicodemus of being guilty of rejecting Jesus's firsthand testimony about himself. And it's not just an indictment on Nicodemus. Uh, I think that this is the beginning of an indictment on all of the Jewish authorities that recognize something about Jesus, but don't recognize him or come to him in faith for who he is. Because notice it, it says, we speak of what we know. What is Jesus saying there? Is he referring to him, himself and his disciples? Um, probably not what he's probably referencing here because this is early in his ministry. He's probably echoing the way that Nicodemus used we earlier. And I think in verse two, we know that you're a teacher from God. Remember, he says, and so Jesus is probably parroting the, the reference there. Nicodemus is there and the first person comes alone at night and he says, speaking on kind of all behalf of the religious leaders and Jesus is parroting that back. And that's evident too, if you, if you notice there, it says, but you do not receive our testimony. The Greek word there, which I believe it says in the ESV footnote is plural. You, y'all. You got some people who from the South, right? Okay, I think we should go back to using you all. You've heard me say this before. The Greek there is in the plural. So Jesus is saying, you all are not receiving our testimony. So Jesus is accusing uh, Nick. He's, he's charging Nick, Nicodemus with being guilty of rejecting Jesus's firsthand testimony and that he's guilty of disbelief of heavenly truths. Verse 12. Again, note... The, the yous here, these are all y'alls. Verse 12, if I have told, can I say y'all? Is that okay? If, if I have told you all earthly things and you all do not believe, how can you all believe if I tell you all heavenly things? Jesus is saying you, you're, you're, you're missing basic, uh, basic earthly message and if that's an indication that you're going to reject the heavenly, the heavenly message. And Jesus goes on to say, and by the way, of this heavenly message, I have uh, the absolute qualifications to divulge these truths. Notice verse 13. He says, no one has ascended into heaven. Okay, right? He just talked about heavenly things. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. The son of man, which is the term that Jesus uses for himself. It's the, self, the title of self-designation he uses the most. Because you're rejecting my message. You're, that is essentially rejecting the heavenly, the heavenly message. Now, it's at this point that Jesus gives one more Old Testament proof that eternal life is gained by believing and looking in particular, in the Son. Notice verses 14 and 15. Okay? Now, earlier, remember, he had just said, you're the teacher of Israel. How do you not understand these things? Don't you, don't you remember Ezekiel? And that he's adding to that another Old Testament story. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay? It's not quoted, doesn't say what Old Testament passage. He just, one short sentence, 
tells a, about a, an issue that happens in the Old Testament. How many of you are reading this going, I, I only have maybe a vague recollection of what Jesus is talking here about Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness, right? This comes from uh, the book of Numbers. So maybe in your Bible reading plan, if you, get, you don't make it through Leviticus, you definitely kind of bail at Numbers and then just kind of jump onto something more interesting. You might miss this story, but in Numbers chapter 21, which I'm going to invite you to turn there, Numbers chapter 21 tells the story that Jesus is referencing here. Now, give a little bit of context. Numbers is, is telling the story about Israel's journeys um, from uh, they in Exodus. They, God had brought them out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt. He takes them to the Mount Sinai and the Sinai Peninsula. He gives the Ten Commandments. And then uh, and in Leviticus, he gives them all instructions about how he's to build the house. And Numbers tells about their long journey. Uh, and their constant, Israel's constant rebellion and grumbling and complaining, and then the decision to, to let them wander in the wilderness for 40 years so that that entire generation passes away. And so now they begin their kind of march from the, the southern wilderness down there to go into the promised land. They kind of go around the east side of the Dead Sea, and are about ready to come into the other side of the land. So uh, they've, they've had, uh, uh, there's another little rebellion of God's people in, in chapter 20. They have an encounter with the king of Edom. Um, it's at this point that Aaron, Moses' brother, dies. They have their first kind of taste of victory over the Canaanites at the beginning of chapter 1. And then it tells the story here beginning in verse 4. Now from Mount Hor they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Okay, so this had been on the east side of the Dead Sea. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke out against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Probably reference there to the manna. Uh, now, uh, uh, Debbie had mentioned earlier her mother and her sister going to Israel. I had, the last time I was in, in Israel, I got to go to this very region that, he's, uh, that they're uh, talking about here, uh, actually to a place just west of this. And it is dry, barren, below sea level. Uh, and so when I read this uh, grumbling and complaining, talking about not having no water, I mean, there's hardly any vegetation whatsoever. It is really a dry and barren uh, place. And I, actually, we were in a, a town called, or a, a region there, an ancient city named of Timnah, which was, um, which was a site of an Egyptian copper mine. So I got to go and see this Egyptian copper mine, and then they had an altar there, an Egyptian altar to uh, Egyptian deities, and it was a, a miner's temple. It was like the temple where all the copper miners from Egypt came up to this location and, and did their copper mining, which is very interesting because of what happens, what happens next. So they're grumbling and complaining. They're out there in the middle of this wilderness. And then you have in verse 6, the Lord sent 
fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people died. So here, here you go. The story from Numbers. Here's the first thing you got to know is the Lord's punishment on them for their sin. Verse six, they're grumbling and complaining. This should sound a little bit familiar because it's already happened multiple times in this journey thus far. They were grumbling and complaining, even though the Lord God had been guiding them and providing for them all along the way. Here, once again, they grumble and complain. And at this, the Lord decides to punish them for their sin. Notice that it says, the Lord sent the fiery serpents. When I was in Timnah, I didn't see fiery serpents. I was very grateful for that. And these fiery serpents then said that they bit the people and that many of the people of Israel died. They don't want to say that they just stumbled into an area where there were a bunch of serpents. It's very specific here. This is coming from the hand of the Lord. This is his punishment for their sin. So there's the punishment, the Lord's punishment for their sin. Now, with this... In response to this, something um, good happens in verse 7. The people's repentance for their sin. And the people came to Moses and said, verse 7, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. So the Lord's punishment But then the people's repentance is in verse 7. And then something interesting happens. The Lord provides, or there's the Lord's provision for their punishment. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Okay, so the Lord makes a provision. He tells Moses, he goes, okay. The people are crying out in repentance. This is what I want you to do. I want you to make a serpent. That's the provision. But then there's also the promise that's included in the rest of verse 8 and in verse 9. And here's the promise. Everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. And then notice if you have the ESV there, you might see a little textual footnote that means copper. Okay, so there's some ambiguity. Is it the, the Hebrew word here for, for bronze or for copper? Um, I think it's interesting because where we were, was there were copper mines. You could see the remnants of the burning of the copper and melting it to come out. It, it's a very fascinating place. So it could be copper, um, but we'll go with bronze. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and then live. Just those few verses, four through nine. One little scene. And you never really hear from it again. You had the Lord's punishment for their sin, the people's repentance, the Lord's provision, and the Lord's promise for their salvation. And then you never hear from this again. Now, what, you, what we must not think here is that this copper or bronze serpent uh, is in some way 
uh, magical or sorcery, that there's some power inherent in this, the bronze or copper serpent. Okay, that would be to, to kind of idolize this device, to kind of think that there's some sort of uh, uh, divination here connected to this. That is not. And, and interestingly, the only other time that this, uh, this story is referenced in the scripture is because Israel did that very thing. They took this serpent and they made an idol out of it and they ended up worshiping it. In 2 Kings, it tells the story about Hezekiah, the good king, who was trying to make reformation and restore Israel in their worship. In 2 Kings 18, it says, as Hezekiah was going and removing the high places, remember the places of worship, uh, underneath the trees on the mountaintops, he broke down the pillars, he cut down the Asherah poles, and he broke in pieces, it says this, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. It's the only other time it's referenced. In the Old Testament. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. And it was called Nehushtan, which is, sounds like the Hebrew words for bronze and serpent. Okay, so uh, not sorcery. The serpent worked because this was the Lord's provision. And notice what, what's to happen. They were told to look at the symbol of their punishment. What was their punishment from the Lord? The fiery serpents who were biting them and some had even died. And so the Lord says, okay, then I want you to make a symbol for the punishment. And when you look at the symbol of the punishment... then that, uh, that also acts as a substitution for your punishment, okay? The serpent represented God's punishment for the people's sin, and now that symbol becomes the substitute for them. Or as I, I'm quoting, uh, somebody is paraphrasing what is happening here, quote, this is the judgment that you, Lord, have justly brought upon us, and only you can deliver us from it, close quote. That's the story. Never hear from it again. So back to John's gospel, what we have happening in John's gospel is Jesus um, comparing his own death to the uplifted serpent from this story in Numbers chapter 21. Jesus himself will be lifted up, he says. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the, the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. Now in John's gospel, whenever you see this, this phrase lifted up uh, in reference to Jesus, it's, it, it has one of two senses. One, it's, the, the Greek word also means exalted. So exalted. And so there's a couple of times in John's gospel where Jesus is talking about the Son of Man being exalted in his exalted state. But it's also in reference to the actual physical reality of Jesus being put on the cross. And in some ways, um, there, there is an exaltation in that, isn't there? Jesus himself will be physically lifted up on that cross. 
when he is nailed to the cross beam of wood. And that cross beam is hoisted up and attached to a vertical beam or a tree. Jesus nailed to it, hands through his wrists, nailed to his feet to the post. Hanging there to die just like a common criminal. But his cross was not like other crosses. On that cross, because this was a common form of, of capital punishment and crucifixion in Jesus' day. Outside of the cities, you would see uh, some criminals just lined up, several of them. And so as you're venturing into the city, it was kind of a public display, a reminder of what happens when you sin against the empire. But Jesus' cross was different than all of those. Because on Jesus' cross, it's the only cross on which the entire sins of the world are placed. Jesus hanging on that cross, then like the serpent, becomes the symbol of our punishment. Jesus hanging on that cross becomes the symbol of our punishment. Like the bronze serpent, Jesus' cross represented God's punishment for not his sin, for the people's sin. And that that symbol then becomes a substitute. That the, the death that the Israelites would have received from the punishment from God of the fiery serpents is now taken away. If you look to it, you will live. What is Jesus saying here? You look to me exalted on that cross, you will live. What a profound statement of the Grace of God, right here. The love of God. And that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Now, from here, verses 16 through 21. Uh, verses 16 through 21, if you have a Bible that has uh, a red letter Bible. You might see that those verses, anybody have a red letter Bible? Are those verses 16 through 21 in red? Yes? Yes, okay. Um, so a lot, of, uh, a lot of commentators and a lot of translations um, see Jesus' words here. Remember, it was a dialogue back and forth between Nicodemus and Jesus. And then Nicodemus asked the one question. And then Jesus has a long, it goes from dialogue to monologue. And some see Jesus' words extending all the way down to verse 21. Could be. Could be. Um, I tend to think, and there's a lot of commentators who, who see it this way too, because remember in the, in, old, or in the New Testament Greek, there's no commas. There's no punctuation. There's no quotation marks. Um, there's no spaces. <laughs> there's no even spaces between words. 
in some of the manuscripts. So uh, in some ways, it's hard to tell when John is quoting Jesus and then when John is just giving his own comments. I believe, and this is, again, you could disregard this, but I believe that this is the beginning of John's comments. The same thing happens later in this chapter where there's John the Baptist is quoted as saying something and then it shifts to uh, what looks clearly like John the Apostle is writing. It's kind of like he's telling a story and now he's giving his own, um, his own explanation for it. I think that this fits that kind of category. These are, these are John's words here. Okay? Um, so if you're a tra- traditionalist and don't like the idea that we're taking the most famous verse in the Bible, that my pastor's taking the most famous verse in the Bible out of the, words of, out of the mouth of Jesus, then just kind of disregard it. Uh, but it's still God's word whether Jesus said this or John wrote it, right? Here's the truth. And it's all about God's love, the love of God, especially in verses 16 through 18. Following on what Jesus has just said, because he's referring to himself as the son of man, then John says this, for, meaning based off this idea of the serpent being lifted up on the pole and that looking at that takes away that punishment and then you get life, Jesus says, that's kind of like what's, what's happening here. You look at my cross... When I'm lifted up, when you look at my cross, when I am lifted up, you will have life. And John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. A couple of things in here. One, the to whom of God's love. To whom? It's to all of humanity. For God so loved the world. Now don't think globe. Think the inhabitants of the globe. Okay, it's not, um, it's not, he's, you know, that he loves, you know, the, the round rock, marble that's, you know, going around the sun. No, he loves the inhabitants of it. The ones who've created, they were created in his image. Little distinction, but it's an important one. But the world represents all of humanity. So in other words, there's no distinction between Jew or Greek here. There is no distinction. If I could, you could see the reference here from Romans chapter Uh, chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, where the apostle Paul says that if you confess with your mouth, no couple of kids have memorized this verse, right? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. For with the heart, One believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 11, for the scripture said, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Jew or Greek. For it says, 
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the to whom of God's love. Now, the how of God's love. This comes from the giving of his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So much here. Just the the fact of Jesus being the son of the eternal God. Which we'll see very often here in John's gospel. But again, like in Romans chapter 8. For we know that those who... um, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not, so now he wants to explain, how do we know that that God is for us and not against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He goes on to say uh, the famous passage for I am sure that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the how. The eternal God and creator of the world gave his son to die on that tree. And then lastly, the why or the purpose. The why. The purpose is eternal life. I think sometimes when you've become, you've been a Christian for a long time and you think of eternal life, you've heard about eternal life, eternal life, that the words just kind of pass through, uh, pass through our ears and we kind of know what that means and we might kind of intellectually check that off. Um, let's not, especially in John's gospel, let's not lose the fact, or let's not lose the significance of this fact of eternal life. No death. Hard to, hard to imagine, right? Many of you have been to a funeral recently. Many of you have gone to a viewing and seen a dead body. Death and decay all around. It's almost mind-blowing to try and think of the absence of death eternal life forever no more crying no more tears no more pain that's eternal life and it's not just eternal life it's eternal life with god the one who loved you enough to send his son So that's the purpose, is eternal life. And if I could go back again to Romans chapter 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You could preach on just this verse, John 3.16, over and over and over again. As a matter of fact... um, I think when I was probably like seven years old or so, 
uh, we stayed home from church for one morning. I can't remember why. I think like one of us was sick, and so we stayed home from church. And my mom had suggested, well, why don't you just give the message? And I was like, okay. And so I did John 3.16, and uh, my mom kept, she actually even typed it up. It was outlined and everything. You know, I had the, the you know, it, uh, it was an expository sermon on just John 3.16. And my mom kept the typewritten thing. I should have gone to the storage unit and found it. I know I still have it. And so I broke it all down. And actually, I'm just giving you the sermon I gave when I was seven or so. (laughs) It'll still preach. It'll still preach, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, I want you to go on a little bit from here, though. And John is, and I believe, I guess, again, John, I believe, is is giving this commentary here. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, right? But in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, I've heard several people say, see, Jesus doesn't condemn anyone. And I'm like, I don't think you've read the whole story. (laughs) You haven't gotten the bigger picture. Uh, Yes, in his first coming, he's not coming to condemn the world. He's coming to save the world by by going to that cross and and suffering and dying uh, in our place that all would look at him could... Uh, live eternally forever. He goes, but he is coming back, and this time he's coming and he's got a sword in his mouth. So he doesn't condemn the world, but it tells us why he doesn't condemn the world in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. He's already, you're already in a state of condemnation because he has not believed in the name of the Son. We're already in a state of condemnation apart from Christ. It's not like you're neutral and you're showing out of a fork in the road. Here's Jesus. Take this path for condemnation and this path for eternal life. No, you're already on the condemned path. But you don't have to be. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John goes on, the judgment has come into the world. We're we're condemned. He goes on to explain even more. The light has come into the world. We're going to see a little bit more about Jesus being the light of the world. The light has come into the world, but people love darkness. Oh, isn't that true? They love the darkness rather than the light because the light will expose our evil deeds that we actually, apart from Christ, we love. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What wonderful words, whether these are from the lips of Jesus or these from, are from John, his apostle, explaining what, this, what is meant here. We have the love of God displayed in his son. He's loved the world, no distinction, Jew or Greek, that he gave his son so that we would have eternal life. That all who would call on him would be saved. But as it 
John reminds us here, it, it requires a turning from the light or from, from our darkness in our sin and coming to the light in Christ. To see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That we look. That we look to Jesus crucified on that cross to be saved. So to close, let me just read these two verses, Romans 8 and Hebrews chapter 12. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for these words that you have provided for us, that, that you, and from eternity past before the foundation of the world, you chose to send your Son, and that he would not only come into the world, that you, you have planned for him to go to that cross. And how even in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, you've provided this scene in Israel's history as a snippet, as a, as a picture of what Jesus promises for us. That when we look up to Jesus on the cross, we see our, your punishment for our sin. And that when we look to Jesus on the cross, we also see your provision that you gave your son. And God, we thank you that when we look to that cross, we see your promise that we have life through faith in him. Oh, what wondrous love that is. We thank you for loving us this much. And God, we pray that you would make us conduits of this message. Help us to recognize the ways in which we can share with others this wonderful truth. And God, help us even in our most difficult and darkest times that may come, help us to remember that even in the face of all of it, you love us. And you've demonstrated that through your son. So, God, we ask that by your spirit and by your word, you would remind us of your great love for us. And we pray that we would live in light of that. And it's in Christ's mighty name that we pray and all God's people said, amen and amen. Brothers and sisters, will you stand for our uh, closing benediction?
Uh, and a reminder, if you, reminder to anybody, if you had a prayer request that you didn't feel like you wanted to, to say out loud, feel free to come up to me and, and share with me that in private. I, I would really appreciate that. If you have any questions about this message or anything, um, also know that I'm up here for that. And reminder, the offering box is over at the table and uh, to, keep, um, to keep all of the prayers that we prayed today today in your, uh, in your prayer request. Today, our closing benediction will be from Hebrews chapter 13. Now, brothers and sisters, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.